On today's podcast, we have Chris Billum-Smith, who is the current WBO Cruiserweight World Champion. Chris recently won his world title at his beloved Premier League side, Bournemouth Vitality Stadium, beating his uh, previously undefeated ex-stablemate, Lawrence Akoli in a majority decision. Prior to that fight, Akoli had never been knocked down in his entire professional career. Chris had him on the canvas three times that night. Chris is the main man in the famous McGuigan trading stable, who've trained world champions, including David Hay, George Groves, Carl Frampton, and Josh Taylor and is now home to some of Britain's most exciting boxing talent, the likes of Adam Azim and Caroline Dubois. Chris also stars in an exciting new documentary, The Stable, which goes behind the scenes of the iconic McQuiggan gym and professional boxing in general. That will be uh, released later this year. I personally can't wait for that one to come out. Chris is an athlete who has risen to the pinnacle of his sport through determination, skill, and a relentless pursuit of excellence. He's a powerful reminder of how far focus, dedication, and professionalism can take us all. In this episode, Chris talks us through that world title fight, his preparation, and providing us an absolute masterclass in emotional control. We delve deep into the life and career of this incredible athlete, from his expert support network, to all his routines and habits that have helped propel him to the top. I hope you enjoy. Chris Billum-Smith, welcome to the Accelerating Excellence podcast. Great to have you on, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me, mate. Uh, Honoured to be on. Um, I'm, yeah, excited. Wicked. Well, I want to start with that classic question I asked, which is, what was the first moment boxing entered your life? Um, my first ever memory of boxing is actually my auntie screaming at Prince Nassim <laughs> on the TV when I must have been about six or seven and we were just having a family party. And I remember running through the lounge and she was literally like, this close to the TV, and uh, she was just screaming at, "Go on, Prince! Go on, Prince! Knock him out!" Um, so yeah, that's my first ever memory. But uh, actually, taking part was a little. Uh, my brother took me down a, a gym, um, which is like in a garage in, in in this little back street in in Bournemouth, and um, yeah, and then uh, I did a little, very little bit there. The, the first session I ever actually went to. Uh, Molly McCann, the, the UFC fighter, is uh, she was coaching me because she'd been doing it from a younger age, and I was a beginner, so we had like three of us as beginners, and she was, he was teaching us. So yeah, That's she some takes, introduction. Uh, yeah, so um, yeah, and yeah, obviously now she's absolutely flying as well. So it's uh, great to see, and uh, we've stayed in touch over the years. Um, but yeah, I mean, I started actually, I only went a handful of times during my teenage years until I was sixteen. Um, and then met a mate at college, uh, my mate Dean Perkins, and he was boxing. I was playing football, Sunday league, and dabbling at a few other sports, probably still. And then um, I thought, yeah, I met, met, met my mate Dean and started, thought I'll go train with him, get fit for football. Um, and just loved the training. And then uh, went and watched him fight, and uh, we were all there chanting his name, um, chanting Dino. And I just remember that must be amazing. There's like 20 of us there, like, having all your mates there like chanting for you and uh, having that atmosphere there for you must be amazing. So I was like, oh, I'm going to give this a go and, you know, I want to just have one fight so I can experience it. And then 10 months later, I was, uh, I was having my first fight. Amazing. And, and what was it? So, so there was that, there's that almost that movie version of it, right? That the fight, your mates there. I mean, obviously you've just come up back off, off the back of a scrap where you had 15,000 mates screaming your name. Yeah. Um, but like, 
was there anything else about the sport that attracted you to it? Is that I think it's just that um what's the that just it's just a primal sport, isn't it? It's just that it just grabs you and I think it's just very primal, but also like everything you get with boxing, it's just it's you against against everything really, everything that's thrown at you in a boxing gym. Uh, every rep, every burpee you have to do, every every minute and every second on the bag is concentrating. And I just loved that I was in control because I played a lot of team sports as a, as a kid. And you could have the best game of your life playing football, but you could still lose 5-0. Um, and I always use that anal analogy because I think I did have the best game of my life once when we lost 5-0. Um, I was playing like sweeper and I was basically like a goalkeeper because the other team was so good. And um, yeah, but I had a phenomenal game that game and I still still lost. So I hated that feeling of just not being fully in control. Whereas I feel with boxing, I've been able to control my own destiny and my own path and take responsibility for things that didn't go my way. And then also by doing that, give myself the best opportunity by training harder or making changes here and there and adapting to be able to, to, to reach the top of the sport. And um, that really appeals to me, um, having that control um, over, over the outcome um, as much as, as much as possible. Obviously there's always going to be variables, but I feel like boxing there's, it's probably one of the least, one of the sports that involves the least amount of luck maybe um, in terms of actually during the game and the fight, you know, there's, there's the least amount of luck because it's all about your perception of vision and punches and, and, and that sort of thing. Whereas football, you can take a, a, it can hit a shin, a shot can hit a shin and spin off and it can either hit the post, go inside the post, go outside the post. And that is literally luck. Like there's no control in that. There's no, no one's smart enough yet to be able to go, right, if I hit it against his shin, it will spin off this angle and uh, no one's brain can quite work that quick yet so uh um i think that that helped me you know just focus and um you know be in control of, of the situation but also the respect and the discipline i learned very early on in the boxing gym i absolutely loved and as i was playing football at the time i sort of ended up falling out of love for football because i was like well this is how it should be this respect and discipline this respect in the sport whereas in football even when i look and or play it now like if I've you know, a few years ago I used to play six aside now and again and I'd I'd turn into this disrespectful person. I was like this isn't me like but it just it just seems to be the way with football um and, and some other sports as well where there's just a lack of respect for the referee, the opposition and stuff. Whereas in boxing obviously that's um you know one second you could be last second of the last round and you're trying to knock the bloke out, the bell goes and you're you're embracing and there's just a huge amount of respect there for, for your opponent it's a special special sport in that respect i don't think anything else, anything else comes close to it in in that area i mean so you, you you fall in love with this sport you, you have your first scrap you're getting into it at what point did you think because you're relatively late starter when you look at the development and the academy pathway in the uk especially in the sort of uh, the olympic pathway but at what point did you think I've already got something here. I'm actually pretty good at this beyond that initial attraction. Yeah, I think um, I never thought about it being a job until it become a job, if that makes sense, and, and being a full-time career. And I'm very 
very much a realist and and I like to sort of have you know huge goals but they're just big goals and you you know taking the steps not trying to jump to the top of the mountain you know taking it step by step and sort of won a few fights and I was like okay I'll go into the I wanted to win a Western County uh, novice title when I started and then I won one in fact the first time I won one was I actually got a bye <laughs> through to the uh, semi-finals of the novice championships so it was for people between 10 and 20 bouts um, I got a bye to the semi-finals because no one entered throughout that and then I boxed a guy in the semis and won by one point and I boxed a guy in the final who got to the final the year before so I sort of but okay, I beat him and I kind of feel worthy, even though I've only had two fights to win it. I kind of feel worthy because he's boxed his way to get there two years in a row. And um, I won that. And then I went straight into the national championships and broke my hand in a fight and beat good kids on the way. But even the fight I um, broke my hand in, I, I you know won the fight. And I thought, okay, that's good. Let's go back in these next year and see how far I can go. And then got to the semi-final, losing to the eventual winner, who was unbeaten in his whole amateur career. And then, um, yeah, and then uh, got a call up to the Great Britain squad for an assessment. And I was so shocked by that. I remember when my coach told me, I was just like, wow, like this is, I'm just a kid from, you know, down in Bournemouth and didn't really expect to get a call up for, I only reached the semi-finals of the, the championships and never expected really to get to the final because I knew I was fight who I was fighting in the semis. And the lad was was so talented, but um, yeah. And we um went on that. I was like, okay, well, next year I got to semi. This year I go try and get to the final next year. Um, and then the next year I I got to the final, and got another Great Britain assessment. Obviously, the first one I didn't get on, and then this one I didn't get on. I was like, right, I'm moving up in weight because internationally they only had I was boxing eighty six kilograms, and then internationally they only had eighty one or ninety one, and I was too big to go down to 81 so I was like I'm going to start moving up to 91 and then went up there and had a few issues here and there, uh, shoulder issues, put me out for a while. Yeah basically just that was my, my aim then to, to get on the, the Great Britain squad so every step of the way it was just goal by goal like win a Western County, okay, I end up winning the national title, okay well let's go into the elite championships where it's the best kids in the country Um, see how far we can get there, I've been season on season trying to improve on that um, reached the final, lost in the, got beat in the final, but got on GB, GB assessments. I thought, okay, now that's the aim, like trying to get on Great Britain squad. Okay, maybe I could go to the Olympics. So then that was the goal throughout my amateur career. And then towards the end, I reached another ABA final and got to um, the third assessment, which is the final assessment on Great Britain squad after after that final and um, didn't get on. And that was sort of like, wow, massive, massive blow. And um Sort of, and how, did, uh, how did you process that blow? You know, it was a really compelling goal for you. Yeah, it was It was hard. It was hard. But, um, I mean, in hindsight, the best thing that ever happened to me was not getting on, I think. And, but at the time, I really struggled. It was a week before Christmas. I, I got the, I remember it was the 18th of December um, that I got the letter. And uh, saying, you know, unfortunately, you, you haven't gotten the squad. And I was like, okay, well. I'm going to go pro then. I'm going to do the ABAs one more time, which were in April. And then I'm going to turn pro. But in the meantime, try and find myself a coach. And I was sparring a lot up, obviously, up Shane's gym at the time. Um, he's now my coach. And I just thought, okay, I'll start at the top. And if not, he can maybe give me advice on who to 
go and train with. Um, and that's kind of what I thought is that he's never going to take me on. I've achieved nothing as an amateur. He's only ever trained international amateurs. Um, I wasn't one of those. So, yeah, that was uh, my, my process. And I was really down um, in, in terms of just not knowing what was next, thought I'd turn pro and be a very average pro, to be honest, because I, we, we didn't have the the training structure down in Bournemouth or, or even, um yeah, or I didn't really know anyone apart from Shane, who obviously, yeah, Carl Frampton at the time was world champion. Um, he was training George Groves. That would have, when I asked, it would have been just before George Groves. Well, title fight, um, I asked him just after Haybox Bellew. So he was training David Hay for the first Bellew fight. So these are obviously superstar names. I'm like, he's not going to take little old me on. Um, but yeah, that was, um, so, so I thought he's... he's Where do you think on. you had that confidence to even ask? I, <laughs> I just, I thought, don't ask, don't get. And I literally said that Brilliant. to Shane on the phone. Um, I had a good relationship because I've been sparring him for, sparring up at his gym for about 16 months I think at the time um so yeah it was uh I just thought and I literally I said hi Shane I was like I didn't get on GB I'm going to turn pro after the ABA I just to be honest you know I understand you've got a busy gym but um yeah, I was just wondering if there's any chance you'd, you'd train me and if not give me advice on who to who to go with um you know I understand sort of you're busy but um, I just thought don't ask don't get and that's literally what I said to him on the phone and he's like yeah like, we might be able to sort something out and like I think I caught him at a good time I think David Hay had just lost and I think he was just leaving the gym I was going to ring him on the Monday after the Hay Bellew fight funnily enough and uh, thought if he had a good mood I'd call him then and then obviously David's Achilles snapped and had to get pulled out of the fight eventually and lost the fight and then so I left it another week so I think that was uh, you know sort of Tactical, tactical thinking, play, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'll leave it another week, and uh, I think it let the the dust settle a bit. Um, so yeah, that obviously um, panned out in my favour. But um, yeah, I just uh, I don't know. I just I'm not. I'm not, I've always been one to not want to be cheeky as well. So I felt like that's probably a very cheeky thing to do for someone who's not like that. But I also just thought it's too good an opportunity not to ask. And thankfully, I made that phone call, and here we are now. Absolutely. And I mean, just for context of people who perhaps aren't uh, into boxing, that McGuigan gym, it's it, it, it's one of the elite stables, it, not just in boxing, but probably across sport in terms of the caliber of the athletes in it. And so that that evolution, you talked about some of those high profile, you know, world champion level fighters in, in that gym. You, you you go from being this like, you, you're humble when you describe that you hadn't had success in the amateurs, but semifinals, finals. So you're at the t top end there. And you suddenly go into this new environment where you really are, you know, legitimately <laughs> bottom of that pack to begin with. And you got to earn that respect from Shane still. He's kind of giving you a chance. What's going through your head at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when on the way home from after we'd had the meeting about me signing with, with uh, the Mwiggins and I was beaming from ear to ear because I thought this is this is an opportunity that no one gets. Like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm so fortunate. The stars have aligned. The timing's perfect for me to obviously ask. Um, but yeah, I, um, I'd i obviously gone from, especially down south and in Bournemouth, there, there wasn't a, a huge amount of even elite senior boxers, let alone ones that were reaching ABA finals. So I just um, 
I was very much a, a big fish in a small pond down here and sort of the the first in a few years to be sort of pushing that pushing the boxing. Um had a few others coming coming through, but um yeah, that was uh I was sort of the 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 leader of the pack in, in that sense and now I've gone from that to very much a very small fish in a in a huge pond, you know, the biggest pond where the talent in the gym like the the standard is set and the standard is world champion or nothing. Um, that's literally that's the aim for everyone who Shane trains is it's world champion or nothing, and that's always the goal. And um, yeah, so it was um, that 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 was a huge leap, but I enjoyed it. Um, and just tried to just watch every spa. So I'd be watching Josh Taylor spa at the time, Carl Frampton, George Groves. You know, I'd be watching all their sparring and trying to pick up things and learn and just spend every hour of the day in the gym, basically. Um, you know, after my sessions or before my sessions, I'd get there early. Um, you know, I'd, I'd usually be the last one punching. I'd be the sort of the runt of the, the, the runt of the litter in that sense. And, um, yeah, sort of just paid my dues there, I think, and just um just tried to learn as much as I could and pick things up and uh yeah, it was uh it was a lot different to what I was used to because you know back at the amateur club where I'd reach ABA finals and they have never had anyone do that and GB assessments um they were unheard of for for people down my way so I was and I was having those and almost got to the point where the trainers would ask me what I was doing in in a session sometimes and I'd be like. I'm I'm just a boxer, you know. You're the coach. You you tell me. But um, sometimes it, that was literally happening. Like I come out of sparring or something. Like, oh, Chris, are you, are you doing the circuit? And I was like, you tell me. Uh, like you're you're the boss. Like, and I I that that used to annoy me a little bit because I was like, I don't want to be setting my own training sessions up. Like I'm here for a reason. You're a coach for a reason. Um, it was only one coach who just sort of said that he maybe just didn't know you know, what I had done in the other room, etc. So, um, but yeah, and... Um, it's generally a sign that it's time to level up, I think, when yeah, going on yeah, that, in a coaching relationship. And it's probably a really good message to to share, actually, a great example of that. Yeah, definitely. And uh, my amateur coach, I, when I eventually told him that I'm turning pro and I'm turning pro with the McGriggans, he was over the moon. He's like, look, I've taken you as far as I can take you. Um, and for you, you deserve a good coach because of the effort you put in. Because I used to... I, you know, as an amateur, a lot of time it's just that you turn up to the boxing gym and a lot of kids just do that and maybe a run. But I was doing those sessions, then asking for extra sessions, then paying for my own strength conditioning sessions and trying to get my amateur coach to open up another day a week and do pads and stuff like that. So I was always trying to push more and more and more and find more, more you know, percentages and get more out of me. Um, And I think for, so for him to hear that I had obviously a world-class coach, on the on the way um gonna start training with and uh he was over the moon and yeah he was saying look that's what, what you deserve so um yeah um going into that environment was very humbling and i very much felt sort of just happy to be there at first and just very grateful and very thankful for the opportunity that's amazing to, and thanks for sharing that and like one of the things that you know i've had the privilege to sort of get to know you and had some exposure to to you, how you approach your craft and one of the things that stands out, I think, to anyone that works for you is your, your professionalism. And I, I would sort of use the word, you're an edge finder. You're looking for, Shane talked about after the you won the world title, about you're looking for 1% everywhere. And could you share to people 
sort of ha- how that works in your world is beyond the ob- beyond the sort of the the obvious pad work sparring the the boxing type stuff how you le- leverage other assets to stack yeah, I mean, in favor i mean i've got an advantage anyway because for me i think i've got the best coach in the world um maybe not for everyone but definitely for me i've got the best coach in the world and we work so well together um but i think that alone is a massive huge percentage and that's not a one on two percent that's a, a huge percent because a lot of people go up go to their gym they've got a, their coach and their coach will stick them on the bags and we're never stuck on the bag the bag for us is a, a workout for a finisher because Shane's hands-on pads every day if we're not sparring so we're either sparring or doing pads when we're punching and, and that I think is one thing that sets us apart from the rest but also Shane's level of pads which is something you can't just go okay well they do pads all the time so we should do pads all the time when we're not sparring because it's the level of pads as well. Um, so their percentages, which, you know, be- before I even start looking for mine, I've got an edge over people. But then you've got, you know, there's, there's things like the S&C. I'm always looking to do the right S&C, the right exercises, the right thing. And in the last sort of, where are we now? Probably last 10 months or so. I've um, maybe, maybe less than that, actually, meant last nine months or so. I've um, started working with a, a guy called Ben Carraway, who's just, he's a, he always treated us and um, for like chiropractic and physical therapy stuff. But now he's doing my S&C and just, it's a new sort of style of, of training that he's doing. And I haven't, for example, I haven't got under a barbell once in the last nine months. And that in S&C is, is unheard of uh, in elite sport. Yeah, it's madness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like people and people be like well but when you understand it well from ben's point of view and hopefully he'll bring out some sort of his a book on his training or something um because you know for now it's fairly secretive um he works with a you know myself as athletes he works with a few um active works of um actors and, and stuff like that as well um but yeah it's just a, a new way of, of training and uh it's very tailored and specific to the sport and that's that's another edge which i've been able to find um which has helped me massively and i, I think lawrence even said to him after the fight in the ring said i don't know what you've done with him but he's so strong now and like obviously i've done hundreds and out rounds of lawrence before um but yeah um so that's another thing but then there's like the little things so like the electrolytes in, in my drink and just making sure I'm always hydrated and not just drinking water all the time especially the amount of I sweat during the day I'm a big sweater anyway um so when I'm sweating out probably probably sweat out anywhere between two to three uh, kilos a day if not more sometimes um and I think re- replacing that with just water I just I'd feel ruined um that's another thing getting my nutrition right you know it's very easy to be a carbophobe in in boxing, I think, and uh, I think the um the the way the sort of education around nutrition is is sort of it's getting a lot better. Um, but I think boxers are naturally quite carbophobic over the years because they just see it as putting on weight, and that's what they take out on fight week to to drop weight and stuff. So they get scared of it in camp. But yeah, I mean, I fuel up and huge amount of carbs and that that help has helped me massively keep the energy levels high and then you've got the uh, the the more 
I'd say different type of things like the mouth taping where you know some nasal breathing where I um during my sleep um blue light blockers before bed um to sort of help help me get to sleep better um whoop which I actually haven't had on since the fight I've seen you've got your whoop on um but yeah indeed, yeah using that for my my sleep and to track my sleep and, and recovery and make sure I'm I'm you know getting as much sleep and doing the right things um that's um yeah another factor and um yeah that for me is a huge part um and then all these things just add up you know and when you do them sort of continuously it becomes a habit and then it just it's just so one easy to do by by the end and just natural because it's just part of the routine but um also it just adds up it just compounds and, and those you just your new sort of level of normal is just much higher than your your old level and, and i think that's the main thing is just keeps increasing that sort of base, base level yeah, yeah just keep lifting that base level i think it's a military proverb i heard but it's like you don't rise to the level of your expectation but you fall to the level of your training and i think that goes for all areas of it your, your training your your recovery, your nutrition, your fueling, all that sort of stuff. And I think once you set that bar and that's the base level, and then you just you just keep raising that bar. Absolutely. I wanna I wanna draw the, the conversation on now to I guess what I'd describe as a peak experience. There's a real obvious one, which is yeah. you know, I've got no doubt there's gonna be a movie about it one day, <laughs> but there's certainly a documentary it's gonna be about soon. But can you talk us through that, that whole process from from the world world title fight like from maybe the moment that you you knew it was on yeah um obviously we actually are we were we had the stadium booked you know which is the dream venue for me um at, at AFC Bournemouth Stadium um dream venue that was booked but we didn't have an opponent um and we tried a few other world champions and they were proving difficult or tied up in contracts or whatever elsewhere then Lawrence was just about to fight at the end of March and I think on the Friday Thursday or Friday we had a zoom call like well what are we going to do because these other opponents aren't coming in who can we fight to sell out a stadium and me and Shane had a chat and we and Shane just put it to, to Sky and Boxer and just said the promoters and just said well what about Lawrence you know he'll get rid of this guy in a few rounds and then he, he's got nine weeks and that the quick turnaround is perfect it's another payday for him in his eyes and you probably think that he could beat Chris. Um and so yeah, and then um he um he obviously went twelve rounds in that fight and it was a bit dull. But um on the Monday and Tuesday they put it to him and he was chatting on Sky Sports and I was like, This fight's actually gonna happen now and uh, I seen that him talking about me and saying like all these other guys that I'm in and are in when they've got a world title shot I'm willing to give them here and they're just you know, the the world of social media, I just wrote, no, I'm an NRM for me, mate. Um, let's do this. So then I think within probably a week, the fight was signed and, and that's a quick turnaround for a world title fight. Uh, um, for me, it was just, you know, the, the, they offered me offered me the good enough money and in terms of that. But for me, it was about the opportunity to fight for a world title against someone like Lawrence as well, who um, I knew well, but also... It goes deeper than that for me because I wanted to fight Lawrence in the amateurs because my last season in the amateurs or second to last season 
he was in the ABAs and he was number one in the country in the GB squad and he was going into the ABAs and national championships. And um he um he then qualified for the Olympics and they took him out of the national championships. So I was like, Oh, I missed my opportunity to prove prove I'm number one. And um truthfully back then I probably wouldn't have beaten him. Um I just don't I wasn't wasn't good enough back then. You were and up then, for it though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just—I always wanted to box the best in the country. You know, that was always, always my goal was to to be, to fight number one, and just see how far I can go with the sport, really, and see how good I can be. And it was if I ever fell short, it was okay, get better. And um, that was sort of always my mindset. Um, and then on, so yeah, then when we turned professional, Lawrence was sort of number one in the country again, and. I was like, okay, like that's the that's the standard. I wasn't at that level yet, but I was like, that's the standard I need to get to to fight him. And just for context, to people listening again who who aren't massive boxing fans, you know, you and you and Lawrence were actually stable mates for a long time. Yeah, so that's time. what I was going to say then. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then he joins the gym. Uh, um, so as a pro, he wasn't in the gym at first. So I've had eight fights. So then he joins the gym, and I'm like. That that didn't sit well with me at all. Me and Shane had an argument about it, and um, his point was that look, he's a few steps ahead of you. And I think at the time Shane thought I wouldn't reach these these heights, and I'm I'm sure he'd admit that, and that's understandable from where I was at at that time. But I had the foresight to know and 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 the effort I was going to put in and the levels I can go to, um, and the sort of stubbornness I have to never never give up and um. And he, um, yeah, and then we sort of fell out about it, the, the way it was dealt with. And I've really struggled for a few years having Lawrence in the gym, to be honest, because I'm trying to be number one cruiserweight in the world and I'm not even number one cruiserweight in my gym. So how, how does that work? And um, yeah, and then Shane obviously explained that, you know, he's a few steps ahead and then he's going to win a world title and move up to heavyweight. And then, um, yeah, he won a world title while he was at the gym and then, was sort of trying I was sort of edging up to sort of British European level a few steps behind him still and then um yeah and then eventually left and here's an interesting one I mean would you even looking back now say that was another blessing in disguise having him in the gym yeah yeah absolutely and Shane had that foresight um obviously we never expected him to leave the gym but it per- paid out perfectly for us um Shane had that foresight to you know, you, he can help you become a better fighter. And he did. And and I think it worked both ways. I think I helped Lawrence become a better fighter. I said that into him to him in the ring after the fight. He's like, he said, look around, look look what you've done. Like, look at this crowd. Um, he, was, he was fantastic in, in defeat, the way he dealt with it. And um, and then he said, look, I said, and then I said, yeah, mate. I said, look, look, look. I said, look what we've done. And I said, like, we've both helped each other get to this level. Um, and, you know, we've, we've brought each other up, we've improved each other, and, and this is um, a product of, of all those rounds of sparring over the years. And, um, yeah, fen- fen- obviously a phenomenal night. But, um, yeah, then obviously, like I said, he, he leaves the gym, um, the fight gets signed, and uh, um, then it's just, I'm just excited. I was really calm in the whole build-up, weirdly. Um, I mean, I, 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 I mean, that was something that stood out for me. I remember sort of catching up with you through, through camp, and... Um you're calm you felt it was a real powerful aura it was almost a little bit intimidating you were extremely centered extremely focused and you seemed to have this super high conviction in terms of how the prep was going and what you were going to be able to summon in terms of ability in in the night 
on the night rather. And that... Yeah. Yeah. And obviously we had that meeting in but we had had that coffee and I said I was almost concerned, wasn't I, about how I was like yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm weirdly calm. I said I don't know at the moment I'm quite happy with how calm I am. Like with You could you know, feel it. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was like I'm quite happy with it, but like it's just I've never felt like this in, in a camp like this this calmness and um that sort of just ran in ran into fight night as well and talk to us about about that then so you're you approaching it's like the hometown hero at, at the uh football club that you had a season ticket at as a kid you supported your whole life Fifteen thousand of your mates are there screaming talk about a little bit of pressure um you know looking back to dean perkins and his 20 mates <laughs> over that time the sort of 14, 15 year old you might have anticipated what was coming. Um, but how how do you how do you balance that? I want to enjoy this experience and I want to deliver. Mm. Yeah, um, I think it was trying to enjoy it beforehand and after. Um so I remember going to the stadium on a Wednesday, we did a charity event, a little QA and then a little boxing session. I wasn't, you know, really involved in the boxing session, but I was there and, and watching and stuff and um I remember when I walked out of the one of the concourses onto the into the stadium uh, and onto the pitch or where you can see the pitch and I sort of welled up in in tears and I was very good at compartmentalizing like letting my emotions come out um at the right time so at there it didn't matter that I was getting emotional I wasn't doing it during a press conference or a workout or getting overwhelmed I just thought well, there like that's the time to get a bit emotional like that's fine um so sort of let it out a little bit um because you don't want that happening on fight night obviously you don't want to walk out into a stadium and go oh my god this is incredible like that's not the time that's not the right mindset um so yeah so I sort of just let let that emotion out then and just um yeah I had like tears in my eyes and it's like this is this is crazy I can't believe this is happening. Like I used to sit up there and like in that that seat up there as my season ticket as a twelve year old kid, chanting players' names, um, wishing like thinking that wow, amazing! Like you having all these fans here singing your name like for playing football, and uh, that was like a childhood dream of mine to to play football. And thought oh, maybe one day I could play football here, obviously as a kid, and then. Uh, yeah, I was never quite good enough. And then managed to forge my way onto the pitch another way. Well, there's, um, a, way, there's a way, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, then on the Friday, we did the ring walk rehearsal. Um, before that, before the ring walk rehearsal, I went and sat in my old season ticket seat. This is the night before the fight. And um, I just sat there and I just thought, this is phenomenal. This is crazy. Look, there's a ring on the pitch. like, And like, obviously there's a lot of people involved but I'm like I've done that like I've I've this is it this is not it doesn't get better than this it doesn't get better I used to sit in this seat as a you know with my little fake stone island coat on thinking I was a casual um <laughs> and uh and chant players names and um the guy who sings red army for me before the ring walk like or it's in the middle of this ring walk but before my Kano tune he used to sit along, I can't remember if he was along from me or in front of me, but we used to just swap and change seats. But yeah, he was in that area as well. He passed away in um, November 2021. So now I always have him as, as before my ring walk. And he's, uh, he's yeah, so like Nonny used to sit there and like, we used to chant this. And 
I just like, and now look at this. Like, this is crazy. And I was sat there for about five, ten minutes. They're like, come on, Chris, you've got to do your ring work rehearsal now, ring work rehearsal now. So I was just like, uh, yeah. And I just, it was nice to really soak. I'm really glad I did that because that was just something off my own back. I was in the stadium. I could have just gone there, gone in the zone and just gone, right, let's do this, get back to the hotel and fuel up and, and whatnot. But I was like, I, I tried to embrace it and enjoy it beforehand. Um, because it's important to enjoy the journey. So many people in boxing, they don't. And then I think they have a massive high for one night after the fight and maybe a week or two after. And then there's just a, a massive crash, which, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about um, a bit more in detail. But so yeah, then I did my ring walk, you know, literally the whole thing, visualized it, got in the zone, imagined I was going to, going to be fighting, did my ring walk, did exactly what I do on my ring walk, where, you know, stand facing the crowd, turn around and all that stuff, do my ring walk, sort of stone face, doing my ring walk, walking down, get in the ring, do my usual stuff. And, um, yeah, and then um, that was uh, a moment that I was able to appreciate and enjoy. So then, obviously, then fight night happens and it's not overwhelming. So I've got, then I've got all the fans there. And the um, you know, I was just in the zone, and I was just like ready, like it was. You really so... were, and there was like that routine you're talking about, that preparation, that emotional control, but that ring walk was powerful. Again, it was an infectious environment, and obviously, it was Adele comes on. I mean, I was looking to my left and right, and there's blokes that look like casuals welling up, and then you come up the top. I mean, it was insane seeing you when you you, you turn around, you come in your your eyes again. You the just focus. You almost like boom, sort of in the crowd. You could almost feel like stepping back, almost to get out of the way. You could feel that focus and just it, it literally looked. I often use the analogy, but it looked like if anyone placed anything in front of your eyes, you're going to burn holes through it. It was that yeah. focus. That's it. And I think for me, it was all about not getting overwhelmed by the occasion and what it was. At the end of the day, all that mattered was those 36 minutes, those 12, three minute rounds of the ring. And I appreciated it a little bit before, like I said, and then enjoy it after. But you're only going to be able to enjoy it after if you can focus for those for those 36 minutes or obviously longer when you're in the ring walk and it, all that. So I remember on my ring walk, there's a little bit where the camera's sort of over to would be over to my my left left hand side and I'm and I was like head down in the zone and then I remember just looking up and just looking around like because people chanting my name and whatnot and I was just like nodded to myself like this is it this is this is the moment and very very split second just not went left the zone but stayed in the zone but just allowed that energy to sort of you know allowed myself to take it on rather than just like have the blinkers on and don't look at anyone, don't appreciate anything. And just um, all that matters is the ring walk and, and, and the ring. I was allowing the energy to sort of help me um, and just soak that in. And there's a moment I just look around and just nod to myself like, yeah, this is good. I'm in a good place sort of thing. And um, yeah, then obviously, yeah, the, the ring walker then down the down the ramp and there's literally people either side of got security with you. But I was just, I couldn't see anyone. Like either side, I wouldn't have known who was there or whatever it could have been my whole family could have been there and I wouldn't have known. I was just zoned in and just let's get to that ring and let's get this job done. And then, yeah, then there's other things that come into place. I'm in the ring. 
and obviously Lawrence doing his ring walk as the champion second. And um, obviously we're boxing outside at half ten at night. Um, and he's, I was like, I was like, he might keep me waiting. Like before the fight, I said, just a shame he'll probably keep me waiting. I just had a feeling. Um, and he's never done that before, so I don't know why, but I just had a feeling, and um, obviously kept me waiting. But obviously, I had the through dart boys design my kit, and they've got the um, the phalanx fleece. So I got them to send material from the phalanx fleece up to where my robe gets made in Sheffield, and that so my my robe was lined with fleece. So I had that foresight. I was like, right, that stadium gets cold on a Saturday afternoon in the summer. Like the wind there gets cold. So I was like. It's going to be nighttime. I was like, I'm going to need warm. I was like, can we put anything inside the fleece? And they were like, yeah, well, if we've got the material, we'll send it up. If not, we'll just get her to, we'll get some other stuff and we'll, we'll, we'll keep it warm. And then, yeah, I'm waiting for Lawrence, but still, once again, just sort of in the zone. I even said to Shane, I said, as expected, like him. And he goes, yeah, exactly, mate. He goes, yeah, exactly. Like we, we knew he'd going to keep us waiting. And you could sense some of the frustration in the crowd then. I was lucky enough to be sort of ringside for that. But you could, what was so impressive to me, because my, when I'm looking at that through the lens of a performance psychologist say, it's that, oh, you know, don't let their routine disrupt your routine. And what was so evident was your your body language, your focus, that look in your eye. It was just so intense. You just, you, you could tell you were, you were really still in control of yourself. You clearly yeah. want to get to your tool. You're mo working through movements, shots, communicating with Shane. Yeah, that was it. It was just uh, sort of a second warm up in a way, and just staying very easy to get in the ring without any experience. And obviously, I've experienced big nights before and twelve round fights and stuff. So, and also Lawrence, I've experienced Lawrence before. So it wasn't like, right, what's this bloke going to look like when he's on the other side of the ring to me or anything like that. Subconsciously, it was just um, sort of. I just felt very calm and just sort of just staying mobile, coiling up and staying, yeah, just staying moving, keeping the body warmth going. And um, like I said, just we were prepared for everything. And um, yeah, and then obviously he does eventually does his ring walk. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but before we dive deeper into the conversation, I want to express how grateful I am that you're voluntarily choosing to spend your time here with us. I also want to take a moment to ask for your support. I want to bring you the best podcast I can in terms of guests, engaging discussions, and thought-provoking conversations every week. And that's where you come in. By hitting that like button and subscribing to the podcast, you play a vital role. Simply put, when you hit that like button or subscribe, you enable the podcast to reach a much wider audience. And the wider the audience, the easier it is for guests within my network to convince their agents, management teams to free up their diary and come on the show. Thank you in advance for your likes and subscriptions. Now let's get back to business. And then he gets in and then battle commences, right? And I don't know if you could talk us through, you know, in a, in a, in a condensed way, your experience or how you perceive the, the fight itself. Yeah. Um, I thought keep the energy high, but don't sort of, overexert yourself early on you need to keep the energy high to sort of take stuff out of him because the way he fights he's a big puncher and a lot of times big punchers um tire quickly and especially if you're keeping them mentally occupied which is sort of the the key keeping them mentally occupied by moving but then not taking too much out of me which is very easy to do and something i did earlier on in my career against richard reactor i was keeping him mentally occupied but i was exerting myself too much i was too busy on my toes and 
very erratic, but I wasn't in Lawrence. I was just in control moving and keeping mentally occupied. And then, um, uh, yeah, then the, the game plan for Shane was look, stay safe first three rounds. Don't even, don't even have to win them. You know, he can win the first three rounds. That's fine. And then we start picking up sort of round, well, he said three or four rounds, he, he said. Um, you know, and then I think unfortunately the cameras don't pick it up on the TV, but we will have it in the documentary, which will come out uh, towards the end of the year. The documentary will be called Stable. That. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to it. And that's sort of keeping me sort of on that high because I'm like, I can't wait to relive it from a sort of a cinematic point of view. Um, but I said to him at the end of the third, I said, um, I'm getting to him. Um, like he's feeling it or something along those lines. And then obviously the fourth round comes and I, I get the knockdown and I made him fall short. And, and am I correct in saying Lawrence hadn't been he he never been dropped as a career, no, no. As an amateur he did, which yeah. is something I watched a lot um in the build up was him getting dropped because it just makes him human, you know what I mean? And um people are like, Wow, oh, yeah, but he does this, he does that, he does that. I'm like, but He's still I love that in elite sport. Whenever anyone I detect, you know, anyone's putting anyone on a pedestal, I love creating the reverse highlight reel. The yeah, like reel just to humanize. Honestly, I watched it so much because I know Lawrence's strengths so well. So I watched that because, like, there was a point where I built him up to in the gym sometimes where I'd be having bad weeks and be sparring him and on and on. And he's flying in camp and he's about to win a world title, and <clears throat> I was dampened. Do you know what I mean? So. I'd done that at times. So then I just made him human and sort of flipped it because I knew how much I'd improved since he'd left the gym, um, both physically and, and obviously um, technically and, and skill-wise. So, um, yeah, so then obviously the fourth fourth round come and, um, yeah, sort of got the got the knockdown and, and that was just the, the timing, timing was, was perfect. The place erupted. Yeah, I love watching it back and hearing that noise of when, like, because a lot of people probably watched the first three rounds and probably thought Chris has bottled it. Like, he's just trying to get through, like, the occasion's got to him. And I understand why they would think that watching it back, but that was all part of the game plan. And um, I was only going to start turning the screw from the fourth, fifth round anyway. And like I said, when I felt him in the third starting to wilt a bit and just making a few errors, you know, he throws a left hook to the head in the the, uh, in the fourth round and I step back and counter him and then he throws a left hook to the body and then that's when I step back and call the left hook up that drops him so it was just those little just knowing you know especially when you know someone so well like I did with Lawrence so you know what parts there and that was a real tipping point in the fight right it suddenly changed and everyone could feel it did you start to sense his frustration yeah yeah for sure and 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 just I said to in the build-up, I said, I think I'm going to shock Lawrence. I think, you know, the the, the strength and the power will, will shock him because he's never really felt it. But I've never dropped him in sparring. I've never seen him dropped in the gym as a, when he was in our gym or anything like that. Um, so I just thought I'd, I'm going to have this sort of element of surprise. Um, me and me and my, um, me and Shane spoke about it, but also me and my strength coach spoke about it as well, Ben, you know. He was like you're gonna. He's gonna be so surprised at, at the the strength and power he got. And that was, I still wasn't at a hundred percent because I was ill in, in the fight week as well. So um, yeah, and um, that was a huge turning point in the fight. That was um, and uh, yeah, he, like I said, it, like you said, he, he'd never been dropped as a professional. So 
I think that for for him was um was a bit of a shock um and his team to be honest um and there was obviously that, a couple more to come yeah yeah I mean some of them maybe weren't not one of them was maybe not a knockdown but I, when I watch it back it's hard to tell if I clip him on with the left hook or not in round 10 but um but yeah then what the thing in the forefront which I watch back and I think from a now being ecstatic about the win and everything and sort of back to sort of normal and not in fight mode. I look at myself, I'm like, I just walk off, walk to the neutral corner. Like that was the level of zone I was in. Like I'm in the dream fight at the dream venue. It's the perfect night. And I've just dropped the reigning world champion. Like and I just walked to the neutral corner like it's nothing. And I just, I, I know, I know the answer, but I also watch it back and think how how does that guy do that <laughs> like from a sort of third party point of view I'm like how how's how's he well tell me about it? it for me it's the ultimate masterclass in emotional control that mm. you know that from beginning to end I'm talking beginning for me is looking at that first week of camp we'll, we'll, everything we'll talk about a bit but like, to to the fight itself is an absolute masterclass and I reckon sports psychologists would almost literally clip what went on there and that's that's the aim in terms of what you want yeah. your athlete to do there, yeah, and I'm I'm like I'm really proud of that because for me, sports psychology and the mindset behind sports has always been a massive passion and something I'm I'm really uh, interested in. And and when I've I love a sports documentary on like the last dance of Michael Jordan, his mindset and stuff like that, and all those things I absolutely love. And I think a lot of people do; they love that elite mindset. And when I look at that, and I think like that's that's you achieving it there and I think you know a lot of it comes down to the stuff that me and you have done together but also the the breath work that I do you know I've got a breath work coach uh called Jamie Clements who's basically just given me you know a few routines to do every morning um and then stuff to do whilst I'm training and stuff and that's helped me massively and just stay calm and um just keeps you on a real good level um and now obviously post camp i haven't really been doing it my my one-year-old's up and keeping you know I, and then i wake up in the morning not much sleep and i haven't done my routine and then throughout the day i feel how stressed i'm getting like because my my physiology my physiology is just not at the same level with just calmness and my nervous system is like in like fight mode the whole time like fight or flight the whole time rather than just staying on a a yeah. nice calm calm thing so well, I think um, it's so important you shared that because I think a lot of people will be listening to this and talking about this emotional masterclass you sort of demonstrated in terms of emotional control and it's it's really I think important to highlight there that there's that yeah that's you when you're aligned with these principles and that's you in in fight mode then there's also the human element and we all have it even world champions um and perhaps to some people listening that would like to improve in this area i think the message there is that look you can get a grip of it by engaging some of the things you are talking about which is really empowering yeah that's it and i think the human i think that a lot of people see elite performers as i have in the past as you know inhumane in and they're not they're not human like it's mortal yeah yeah they're, they're they're different they're built different but they're not the same if they go through the same things you know they fail that's the biggest thing like People just see the see me winning the world title, and they haven't seen all the failures and the the downtimes and the hardships that you have to go through. But that's what made me. If it was plain sailing, I would never be at this level. Like it's as simple as that. Absolutely. And then, so just to just to finish that off, then fourth round it turns, and it, it's a real battle. 
I mean, it, it goes the distance. Were there any points that that you did doubt yourself throughout throughout it? Or no, like Shane, he gives me a kick up the ass after one round. He's like, mate, you've got to do more. I need more from you. I think it was after the might have been after the sixth round. I got to the fourth. I think I had a good fifth, and he had a point taken off in the fifth as well. Yeah. Um, and then I was sick or something. I wasn't doing enough because I wasn't working up on the inside. And then, um, yeah. And then obviously got knocked down in round ten, maybe, and point taken off in round five and seven. Um, and it was just you like, I need you, and like I just didn't. If I could go back now and be, you know, hundred percent energy and everything and perfect version of me, I would have done a lot more work and got a lot more work off because but the energy levels I didn't want to like I felt like I was in gear three the whole fight and I felt like if I was like getting to gear four gear five I would have just depleted and not been able to even get into gear three because of my I was ill during the week of the fight and stuff um which sort of you know took a lot out of me and um yeah you know basically didn't eat for I think I had three meals in total between Thursday morning and Saturday night so I think that was one on Friday evening and two on Saturday like actual physical meals that I ate and then it was just getting calories in through liquids where, where I could but didn't put near enough weight on as much as I normally would and um, yeah but so I think the energy levels took a massive hit from sort of the whatever I had the virus or something during the week um, the bug I had and um, I think that was sort of energy management was important and not getting you know maybe it helped not having all that energy to keep me calm and, and stuff maybe that was a, a factor and maybe help, help me on the night but um yeah Shane was like I need a little bit more from you and I just had to pick my moments because of the energy levels it was very much about working smart and not working hard because so many people against Lawrence when he's holding lean and all that stuff they try and work hard and that's not necessarily the right thing to do so especially when in my state where I was depleted, it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. Um, it would have given him so much more success and advantages. And it was about when he, when you can't get out like of the clinch, don't try and don't waste energy there. Whereas a lot of people do, they're trying to just trying to get shots off at the wrong times. As soon as I realized that was the wrong time, I'd just relax on the, in the inside and just stay calm. But um, yeah, um, that was uh that was that was what it was about was energy management but in terms of did i doubt myself not really just very much about staying focused got a little kick up the arse from shane and, and that that helped as well excellent and then obviously it goes the distance the crowd everyone sort of knows who won that fight but then it's boxing right and there's judges and it's you never know i mean how are you feeling at that point yeah still hadn't like got to the end of the fight and i celebrate thinking like i've won that but I'm very much a realist in boxing in terms of you get bad decisions. I've had them in the ABAs when I was an amateur. The ABA final, I thought I'd won. And I, I remember, and then ever since then, I'm like, against Richard Rappor, I thought I'd won. We thought we had me up in the corner and um, obviously didn't get the decision then. And then, um, yeah, and then the first scorecard gets read out and it's 1-1-12, 1-1-12. And I'm like, what? And then I don't think I listen to the last two scorecards or I might have listened to one of them I'm like but not done the maths and because I'm like not quite there as such because there's a lot going on but I was like surely that's me but if I'd done the maths I would be like 100% because 
one of the scorecards ended in 108 and one ended in 107, which means 107 means I had to have won the fight because there's no, even if I lost every round, I would have had 108 um, because, you know, you only I would have only have ever lost around 10-9 and then he had points taken off, etc. So some rounds would have been 9-9. But with the knockdowns, I didn't even think that, I didn't even process that. And I just remember, I don't know, I think I looked at the corner after they said the last two scorecards before it said, and the new one, I was like, that's, that's got to be me. And then like, just to hear it and it just get it confirmed was just pure elation. And finally, like, even though I thought I knew after the fight, I thought I knew during the scorecards that to hear it was just like an, another level and just, yeah, just a crazy emotion. And, uh, gives me goosebumps now and every time I watch it back I get get emotional um and try and enjoy it as much as I can because it's like I said on during the fight and fight night it's hard to enjoy the whole atmosphere and everything but um in that moment it was uh yeah incredible oh amazing and obviously your wife was in the ring with you to celebrate it was incredible um and the crowd was just insane one of the most yeah. sporting uh, events I've ever been at and probably ever will in that respect well, yeah, well, that's, I mean, for me, it's it's hard to fathom it because I'm like, well, obviously for me, it's going to be crazy because it's like not whoever, you know, however many fans are there for me. And then at, this is my dream. This is my perfect dream. It couldn't have been a better night, location, what was on the line, opponent, anything. It couldn't have got any better for, for, for me. Um, So to hear it from other people's point of view is nice, but also like i'm like how good was it for, for other people because it's not going to be as good as it was for me because one i'm the man in the arena and two that's the perfect dream like it's the perfect fight like i said all those all those factors and variables that come into it um they were it was just perfect so i'm um, then the atmosphere is just electric but i've had people message me or tell me well, i was at a wedding yesterday and they were telling me that like, like oh, one, one of the best nights I've ever had and like people saying I've been to a lot of sporting events over the years and that was the best one I've ever been to and I'm like that's so nice to hear that like sometimes you think oh people just you know saying it because you're there in front of them but I've heard it from so many people it's like well it, it was absolutely some night but obviously it was for me but I'm so glad other people got to experience what I can only imagine in my eyes to be a snippet of what I felt because of everything so yeah, just pure elation, I think, is the, the word. And the, the atmosphere was just crazy. And I love watching it back and um and hearing it all. And one memory that always sticks for me is coming into your uh, your changing room afterwards and seeing you, your mum, Mia, and Harry Redknapp doing the old championes. Yeah. That's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, I, um, yeah. I, I try, I feel like in our gym sometimes, Obviously, where everyone was elated from the team, but sometimes we forget to really celebrate those moments. You know, Shane's not a drinker and stuff like that, so we kind of forget to celebrate those moments. So I, I, I've always wanted to sort of be in a football changing room and as a team and, and celebrate. So uh, there I was in a, in a football changing room um, celebrating with my team. So uh, yeah, you know, chanting Champions and. Uh, the Man City do it enough this season, um, <laughs> and uh, like yeah. yeah, and yeah, and then um, yeah, yeah. So it's a great, great moment, and yeah, just just crazy, just so nice to have my whole family there, 
with my team in the change room because that's just all the important people to me you know I was surrounded by them and um got to share that moment with them which was for me you know really important I've got my but all my close family there mum dad brothers Mia then I've got my team Shane the whole McGuigan family Josh Pritchard then I've got old gym mates Luke Campbell and George Groves who have been massive inspirations to me during my careers and now they're good friends and yeah just um really special but important I think to to sort of have those people around you in those moments and properly celebrate it absolutely uh, and, and appreciate it because sometimes it can just be what's next and you know I got asked that in the press conference a huge amount like what's uh, what, what's next I just said look I appreciate you've got to ask that but I'm not going to answer that question tonight. Tonight is a night I'm just going to celebrate and appreciate this moment because it, in sport, it's always what's next. Don't get me wrong, if I lose my next fight, I'll get forgotten about. Or even if I retired, people get forgotten about very quickly. So, But I want to appreciate that moment um, and, and, and enjoy it. So, um, yeah, that was really nice to have everyone there and, and be able to do that. Brilliant. I mean, and it... <laughs> Obviously, now I want to pivot because we've talked about this peak experience and it's insane. It literally is the stuff movies are made of. It's every kid's dream. And listening to you, I guess, you know, it can almost sound like, okay, formulate, you set this goal, you do that one. You talked about that from the amateurs and there's this like linear progression. But it's not so simple like that. And people publicly perhaps see the, uh, you know, the public side of it. But behind the scenes, I mean, you you alluded to, to one particular challenge you had uh, in camp. But like you're into camp and then you, you get some tough news personally. Could you talk to us about the situation with your mum? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I said before it was six weeks. It must have been closer to the fight than that. I think it was about four four weeks before the fight. I uh, found out my mum's got breast cancer and she had it 25 years ago and had a mastectomy and thankfully we got through it you know she had chemo radiotherapy and all that stuff before and then a couple of years ago she had a stroke and um so i worry about my mum like she's like my, my hero my best mate um so i worry about her all the time anyway every day i'm you know you know every few days at least i'm messaging her like you drink enough water you're doing this you know you're mouth taping because i got her on the mouth tape um so yeah um i'm always on a bless her um so yeah i found that out and um mia i was mia was with me but she'd found out that morning and then my mom was telling me when i got back from from london and um apparently mia said to her like don't tell chris don't tell Chris. you can't tell him before the fight you can't tell him and um my mom was like i've got to tell him like, i can't not and she was right because if i'd found out after the fight i would have been angry um it would have tainted the night in a way um because i want to yeah um I'd, I'd want to know that information it gives me another reason to fight for something another bit of motivation as well when you have that news and and, and you know it um yeah and then um you know to be honest it wasn't it's basically bad news and it's all you know cancer's always but but it was almost the best form that mum was like look it's a small lump i haven't got our chemo or radiotherapy i'm going to get a mastectomy i've already decided um, and that's, I think it was two weeks after my fight, but I'm going to book it in for then. Um, and yeah, so the, the way she is, she's so positive the whole time. And, um, I think because of the way the news was, it was a positive side of, of getting the news or, you know, it was in the most positive way possible. It, 
you know, right, you have got cancer, but it's it's small, it's, it should be dealt with fairly easy. And um, she's since had the operation and it doesn't even look like she had an operation. She went for a checkup a week later and they were like, I can't believe you, you had a, an operation. But yeah, so to get that news was, I just sort of, I parked it, but I think my I think my mum helped me park the news because she was like, look, she wasn't crying or anything. She wasn't down me. She's like, look, it's small. It's much smaller. It's like a quarter of the size of my original lump that I did the first time. I don't need radio. I don't need this. So it's like, cool. Like, mum's cool. She's going to have the uh, um, have the surgery in, in six weeks after the flight. There's nothing we can do. I've always been about controlling the controllables. So, you know, since then, I, I sort of just, between then and the flight, I just... um went just sort of zoned in really and just sort of made sure she was okay but um she she was she was so positive and like i said nothing we could do control controllables there's nothing we could control about a situation apart from you know booking for surgery and then uh yeah i took her in for surgery and, and everything after the fight um which i'm you know really glad i was able went around to to do that and be there for her and stay at hers and look after her and stuff which is um the least I can do after the what she's done for me and in, in you know thirty two, nearly thirty three years. So um yeah, it was um like I said, I think mentally it was just mum helped me deal with it in a in a very good way because the way she responded to it. That's amazing. And obviously wish your mum the absolute best in terms of her accelerate recovery. Thank you. And I mean, that, uh, it's some challenge to go through while you've got this on the other side, you've got this dream opportunity and then there's that challenge. But then you alluded to it briefly, but then fight week, your son, Frank, <laughs> amazing. But he comes, was it a cough, cold or? No, so he had, um, he had sickness and diarrhea the week and the week before Ideal. on the Wednesday. Yeah. And then I get home on the Friday night and Mia goes away, my wife goes away for a hen do. And so I've got, got clue. I'm looking after him during the day, so I stay in the hotel on weekends anyway because he wasn't sleeping great. So like people is um, my mother-in-law or our best friends had him overnight, but I had to be with him in the day and stuff. And then I have to go back up to London on the Sunday night, train Monday, um, and then uh, Tuesday, stay out there Monday night, come back Tuesday, and then Tuesday morning I had. Um, Woke up, terrible night's sleep, Monday night, um, just tossing, turning, felt horrible. And then, yeah, just I was on the toilet um, for way too regularly. <laughs> um, nothing solid was, was coming out. And I was like, oh, dear. Then I, mean, I was sick twice as well. Um, on my whoop, I think that day, on the Tuesday, I think I had an 11% recovery. My HRV was like, 38 or something like that i'd have to check but um yeah. it was low it's usually up in you know around 100 marks so it's pretty low and um yeah and then uh it just felt rough all day um and then, i mean that's that's just far from ideal but yeah for a world title fight and again like back to the psychological piece or emotional control piece what, what what's going through your head in terms of how you manage that I think speak to the right people. So I spoke to the doctor we we know and he was like, Look, don't eat. I'd already eaten some by the time I spoke to him. It was like um 
just for 24 hours don't eat just have diorolite um which usually i wouldn't do on fight week because of the salts like you sort of manipulate the salt content and stuff as well with, within yourself um um to, to help with the weight because it holds on to water etc but because i wasn't eating anything i was like that's the only form of fuel i'm getting um so i did that for 24 hours had some food didn't didn't agree with me so this run basically ran on to thursday morning thursday morning i ate again and i was like this is not ideal and then i rang my nutritionist because we only me my manager josh me my manager which is shane's brother uh jake mcguigan so it's me jake mcguigan shane mcguigan josh pritchard and mia that knew so obviously wouldn't let anyone and then two of my mates knew because i had to get them to come and help me on the tuesday night to get all my stuff from the car because i had no energy to lift anything and i had like all my bags all my stuff my sauna blanket everything like my all my meals my supplements my bag of stuff my clothes and then but they they come and help me and i was just like look lads like this is the situation one of them actually i, I voice noted because i was meant to on fight week i like to have like a I get together with my mates on one of the nights just to chill out. Um, so I was inviting them to the hotel on the Tuesday night anyway. And then I just put into the group, like, lads, I can't make tonight. Um, I've got a, got a few stuff, bits to do. And then one of them, who's a really good friend of mine, was like, messed me privately. He was like, you're right, mate. Um, like, not like, obviously not like you to cancel, but maybe thought like, I was felt feeling the pressure or whatever. But um, yeah, then I eventually told him and he came and helped me. So, very few of you bring my nutritionist on Thursday. I was like, and he's on holiday because he's getting married the following Monday. So he's out in Marbella. Um, but he's always there for me. And that's the the beauty of him. He's, you know, he's, I was like, mate, can you call me when you get a chance? Like, mate, give me 10 minutes. Um, he's on holiday with his, his, his missus, his family, his little one, the one year old. And he was like, yes, I was like, oh, yeah, man, this is the situation, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, okay, well, just eat dry foods, no, no dairy. And I've been having like, I don't know why I didn't think of it myself, but it's fight week. I was like, you're trying to have low carb stuff, high protein stuff. So I'm like having like yogurt in the mornings and stuff like that and nothing and eggs and stuff like that. He's like, that, like basically the worst thing I could eat. And um, yeah, and he, um, is that right? Eat dry food, no dairy at all. So like dry bread or rice crackers, um with nothing on them like maybe like some salt or uh, salt salted ones and stuff and then uh, and i kept that down and i was um that was my thursday and that was the last thing i ate until friday evening um because yeah i just yeah just still and then friday i mean thursday afternoon actually i did the press conference and i felt a bit better um i felt a lot better to be honest compared to what i had been energy levels weren't high in terms of physically but yeah, the um the rest of it, you know, mentally I was alright at the press conference. Felt a little bit more with it in my head. Whereas at the workout the day before I was all over the shop and doing the workout, putting on a brave face. But um but yeah, and then um obviously yeah, got to got to Friday, made weight and sort of everything had settled down a bit and I felt a little bit more normal and I could I could eat properly. So um and Yeah, we got got there in the end. You certainly did. And it, 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 on that note this concept of things coming up from nowhere when everything's going well, or just when you really don't need it, something comes up. What's your advice to people that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not a world title fight, but you know, they've got a goal and then inevitably life throws a sidewinder their way. Is there any, any advice that you would direct them in on? Well, 
for me, it was like the fight's happening Saturday. I've got to get in the ring Saturday night. And I've got to give it everything that I physically and mentally give it. So that's going to happen anyway. So regardless of how I feel, I even said to myself, if I get in the changing room on, and I feel crap in the warm-up, I just won't warm up. I'll just save all the energy I've got. And I've got 12 three-minute rounds to get in the ring and give it everything. You know, obviously, we got to Saturday, felt fine on Saturday. Obviously, energy levels weren't as high as it could have been, but actually the, the energy I had on mentally, I felt fine uh, um, to give it. But during the fight, obviously, it was when the energy levels, I didn't feel like I had more gears. But yeah, so I felt fine, thankfully. But I was just like, um, the fight is happening. So I've got my goal. That's happening. That's not moving. I can't move it. This is this is where we're at. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to fight for a world title at the football stadium. If I cancel, this is never happening again. So that's happening. So now all I need to do is could control the controllables and that's get myself as well as I can to perform the best and sometimes just simplifying it um, and, and doing that and saying, look, these are the cards you've been dealt. You can't change them. You can't do anything about it. You can only deal with what you've got and the tools you've got, um, which may be for some people a lot diff more difficult, but I just took all emotion out of it and all oh, but I wish I would this. I was like, look, all I can do, we can deal with the ifs, buts and maybes after the fight. For now, I can. all I can do is control the controllables, get myself prepared as much as possible to get in that ring and give whatever I've got, 100% of what I've got. Um, and I think that's just how I, how I, I did it. I was never put out that fight. It was way too big an opportunity. And I just, I don't know, maybe there was some weird divine sort of thing telling me that it was all going to be okay because that's how I felt the whole time. I, I never once panicked um, during the whole thing. Looking back, I think, once again, how, how? But I think maybe it helped because I knew Lawrence and I knew what I can and can't do. Um, but, uh, yeah, just basically what I could control was how I, I deal with the situation. And... Um, that's brilliant. That's... It's, it's great insight into sort of because you clearly you certainly come across to me anyway as a glass three quarters full type of bloke, and it's, yeah. it's clear that there's some methodology behind that belief rather than some rose tinted glasses type stuff. So, so I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, I think that's the uh, the key thing is staying calm in those situations and, and controlling what you can control and what will be will be. Um, I, I had a quote actually from uh, Triple H said it. he was in, the, the wrestler was in Floyd Mayweather's changing room before a fight once and he said um, that he didn't really feel comfortable in there. He was like, oh, Floyd, I'm going to go down. Floyd was like, no, no, stay, stay. And then like 20 minutes later, Floyd, I'm going to go now. Blah, blah, blah. And that happened like two or three times. And then Floyd at the end was like, look, stay. Like, whatever's done is done. I've done all my training. You know, I'll warm up when I'm going to warm up and whatever's going to happen tonight is going to happen. Um, and I've sort of just always thought of it like that and um thought that that's such a good way to look at it like what's that you can't go back and do another run you can't go back and do another spa you can't go back and change what you ate yesterday so it's just um just basically this is what what will be will be and i think that's kind of the way you got to look at it do everything you can for 100% and then um, what will be will be amazing and then chris just pivoting again, like 
the other side of training, performance, winning world titles, navigating adversity is is sort of the the off switch that that ability to actually I talk about the term like greenhead, but that that zone of uh, restoration, recovery, rejuvenation. Like, how how do you how do you switch off? How do you maximize that? Boxing, I think any sport for me, and I think it probably is for a lot of athletes, is it's a twenty four seven job. So it's not turn up at training and do your training and, and leave. It's like do the extras for a start, but also do the recovery, you know, and the recovery starts as soon as your session finishes from hydration, eating as soon as you can, getting the right foods in, um, doing some breath work. Um, so for me, like switching off, I mean, the breath works help mass- massively for helping me switch off yeah. and stay sort of calm and, and sort of level myself out and, but also the experience, I think, and that's one thing you can't you can't teach people, you can't teach experience, you just gotta experience it. And um I think I used to get so frustrated in some sparring sessions when they were bad or training sessions when they're bad or to be on the pads, get really irate at myself and Shane used to hate it. Like it'd be he'd be so annoyed with how annoyed I was getting because I couldn't get something. Um rather than go, okay tomorrow's a new day that's behind me once again sort of what I was just alluding to there with, with sort of what will be will be and what's done is done um I think yeah it was like okay tomorrow's a new day you will have good days you will have bad days you will have terrible days you have fantastic days not so many fantastic days because you're training all the time and, and it's hard you can't peak during training camp you can't just peak to one day even when you're doing your last spa you've probably trained twice the day before um, if you're doing like a long 12 round spa or whatever it is so I think yeah it's just about taking breaking it down into sort of mini cycles and um, letting the recovery just you know be part of it and like I said 24-7 it's just as soon as you finish a session you're you're working towards the next session or which is maybe the next day so then you've got to think okay don't eat too late don't look at screens too late um make sure you're hydrated and your sleep's good because then the sleep's good and then everything's just a snowball effect and I feel like I did that really well this camp and this year in 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 general um I had all my sessions sort of planned out there or thereabouts had the days I'd be training but at the same time you've got you've got to be adaptable but um yeah I think switching off the breath work has been huge to be honest but it hasn't been like a using it after the fact it's been almost like a pre thing like i'd wake up in the morning yeah. i had a really good morning routine where i'd get up run my cold bath drink some water as the cold bath run i'll do my mobility 12 minute mobility routine turn the bath off make a protein shake take the protein shake in the bath or like to, to drink to have while i'm in there and in there i'll do my breath work um and that, that that routine was just just became so natural and such a good habit. And I think that just set me up for a winning day. Uh, and I know you're you're big on big on that on just sort of how you start is almost how you finish. Just putting yourself in that position. Whereas sometimes I used to wake up and I'd have like an hour to go till I've got to be at training. And I'm like, okay, I haven't eaten, I haven't drunk anything, I haven't done any mobility. And I just like that was earlier on in my career. And once again, that that experience comes in and, and you start to learn give yourself the best chance to have the, the best day possible. 
Well, that's it. I mean, um, imagine, imagine that you, the two yous there, one that lies in bed to the last minute, scrolling on social media or whatever, jumps up, rushes to training versus the you that does, you know, what you just talked about, different yeah. animals. And do that over 365 days, there's going to be a very different outcome at the end of it. Yeah, and I think that's something I've really tuned into in the last, like gradually through the years, sort of first when you're not fighting like huge opponents, you know, big names, people you know you can beat. Um, you sort of take a few shortcuts, like not shortcuts as such, but just you're not on it as much as you should be. And then through the years, you just get more and more professional. Um, you know, you don't, and I think for, for people, they sometimes too hard on themselves. I've always been very hard on myself. Like I'm not being professional enough. I'm not being professional enough even if I'm doing more than other people, I'm like, I can do better. And I think that's the key to a lot of things that people are like, okay, that's the way it's done. Rather than looking at it, go, okay, what can we do better? Like, I know you're, that's, you know, half of what your, your majority of what your job is, is like, okay, it might work now. And that's how it's always been done. But how can we maximize it? What, how can we get this to perfect? And, um, that's how I've always been in, in, in my mindset. That's amazing. And so, Chris, like, what are you most excited about next? It's, I mean, it's, it's difficult. It is difficult for me because um, we spoke about it, like that, that mindset of I've achieved the perfect dream. I won't have a more perfect night than that. And I think me knowing that is a good thing. I think I won't be chasing that, trying to get the perfect night, but I can still have great, phenomenal nights. And, and that's that's what excites me. And, I think now that the, obviously my name's got got a lot bigger and I think the fans have got even warmed to me even more because we've gone from three and a half thousand in, in the small arena to the 15,000 in the stadium. And I think that was, um, that was, that has helped me grow even more and the fan base is huge, you know, and down in Bournemouth especially. So I think that it's just going to grow and I think more people are going to get involved and, and more people will be singing at, at fights and stuff. So, and the atmosphere, like I said, is why I got into the sport. So I think that's the thing that boxers miss most and, and sports people miss most is that elation of support that you get. Um, of, yeah, the elation of having that support there for you and having that feeling. I think that's what a lot of people miss and go chasing post, post-career. Um, so for me, it's about getting as many of those nights as we can. Uh, creating as many great memories as we can. Obviously, earning earning as much money as I can yeah. along the way as well. Security but, is important in that respect. Yeah, but it's not. It's that's not the thing that excites me because I'm not a materialistic person. I'm not. I don't want a flash car. I don't want to. Like you know, I'm 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 a bit into watches, but I'm not like into like twenty grand watches or anything like that. Like that's probably the only thing I'm interested in is maybe a few watches here and there, but you're not talking like stupid money from. So the money's not being for me in terms of excitement. Obviously it's important because I've got a son, I've got a family and I want to provide and also my career's not long. So I've got to look, um, look at that as well. But yeah, um, uh, more titles, more, more, uh, more belts and um, just more memories. And that's, for me is what it's about is having as many memories that I can live off. Is there, I mean, is there, a, is there a dream uh, opponent next? I mean, I heard there's a Mexican lad who, who fancies a cracker, <laughs> a, a, a cruiserweight belt. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, there was talk of Canelo coming up to cruiserweight, but, um, and obviously he's the biggest name in the sport and the, uh, but I think he's, he's trying to box at 
five pound over the light heavyweight limit, which is still twenty pound below the cruiserweight limit, and there's no yeah. way I'm getting there. And Badu Jack, who he was gonna fight, he used to box at light heavyweight, and he's not even interested in getting down to the there. So I understand it from both their point of views. At the end of the day, Canelo's the big name; he calls the shots. He's the money, um, but uh, and he's also you know boxed at middle and super middleweight most of his career. Um, so why would you go up to two hundred pound when it, for him to actually get anywhere near two hundred pound, he'd be he wouldn't be in shape. Um, so but then at Badu Jack, so I get his point as well. You know, I'm a cruiserweight. I'm not. I'm not five pounds above light heavyweight. That's not the cruiserweight limit. So. I can't see that fight happening, but um, I think the dream fight for me now would be Richard React for rematch for if he can go and win a world title and we unify. I think that's a huge fight, um, and that really whets the appetite for me. Um, that's what I want to be in. I've always wanted to be in big domestic clashes. I have been in a lot of first React for fight. Then I went fought Craig Glover, um, boxed a guy called Nathan Crawley from Wales, and then obviously I had. Tommy McCarthy two fights, the Isaac Chamberlain fight, the Lawrence fight. So they're the fights that I really get up for, and I absolutely love those fights. I mean, it's and, it's um, a really unique time, right, for cruiserweights in the UK. Yeah, we've got at least three or four of the top five or six in the in, on the planet at the moment. Yeah, yeah, you know they're all very highly ranked, and um, I've proven I'm not afraid to mix it with any of them, um, including the most big and awkward one, which was Lawrence in in the last one. Well, no one wanted uh, to touch him, did they? No, you know he's um he's never looked close to getting beat in his whole professional career and I think that's something I alluded to before the fight because for me that was important it was important for me to really make people aware of that so when I beat him I get get the uh get the plaudits for it and um not just oh he's rubbish and that sort of stuff because he's effective at what he does but yeah it's an exciting time to be a to be a British bruiserweight for sure Absolutely. Chris, I just want to finish off with some more sort of quick fire questions. If that's all right with you. Go for um, greatest athlete of all time. Uh, LeBron James for me. Um, do you want a reason? Yeah, go on. He just does have, he just seems to do it. I mean, look at his longevity. I think longevity is a massive factor of the perfect athlete because the, or the greatest athlete, because that shows, you know, over time people can have one, one hit seasons or three-year period where they're good. You look at the likes of like Eden Hazard in football, a couple mm. of seasons, fantastic. But the longevity of LeBron James playing at the top and still performing how he is, does everything right from what we see, you know. Um, I think he's one of the first athletes to have a whoop. Like, all those things. I love how he just, he seems to just look for every single aspect of it um, and really push that and um and the way he carries himself as well, I think he carries himself really well. And I think that yeah, when you're such, such a big star, it's so important because you're so influential on all these people. Um, obviously, boxing most of the time doesn't have very good role models. Um, but yeah, the, the, it's important, I think, the way he carries himself. I think that adds to what makes him the greatest athlete. Um, and I think it's the only reason other people may not see him as it is because... He hasn't, um, he hasn't retired yet. He's still not done. Yeah. Um, but there's plenty up there. You know, Roger Federer, is another yeah, one for me. The the class and and the way he played and and um and what he did for the sport was fantastic. What about greatest team of all time? 
And I don't want any ridiculous bias and Bournemouth popping up here. <laughs> I'm not yeah. tolerating that. <laughs> 2002 Bournemouth team, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think for oh, it's a difficult one. Um, I think you just I, for me, I've got to go for like probably. I mean, I'm a, obviously a football fan. I follow football a lot. Um, I go. I'm biased probably because they're British, but I think Fergie's United was special because they had a leader and Fergie who was phenomenal you had characters like Roy Keane in there and like yeah. the dynamic of all but then you had like the you know the, the class of a winger like Giggsy and then the sort of iconic person in Beckham and then you've got yeah. people you know the Scolzi was sort of the, the quiet one but people think he's one of the best players of all time and the, you know the players that played against him say he's one of the best players of all. so like I think you had some and it was in a time where like in the nineties, football was just different. It was just different, and uh, you look at like the line. I often wonder that because you say that, and I feel exactly the same. And I'm like, is that just because I grew up with it at that point in time? Yeah, the but it just felt different. like a different sport, right? Yeah, it was. It was. You had, I mean, the tackles that used to go in them for a start. So you had to be built a bit differently, but yeah. you had to have a bit more grit and tenacity about you. I think back then, a bit more of the mindset during competition whereas now there's more of it outside of competition more of that longevity and that living lifestyle where i think mm -hmm. is where more gains are made now because people live a lot better um whereas back then you had people like gazaru obviously was a big drinker and still used to be able to perform at the, at the level like he a did magician, and, yeah yeah and, and uh yeah so for me i mean i watched that 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 treble winning season it was phenomenal but don't get me wrong there's that's just off the top of my head. That's what, what comes to my head. Yeah, absolutely. Favourite movie? Inception. Nice. Uh, yeah, I love Inception. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thinker, isn't it? Um, it is. But, but I love the, the, the concept of it all. Favourite series? Um, I'm enjoying Succession at the moment, but I think that's a bit of recency bias, but it's really good. Um, I think The Wire. I never actually finished it, but I used to watch that in camp. That was a an epic. So um, I'll probably say The Wire. And book. I'll have to go two different books. I go fiction and non-fiction. Fiction, Harry Potter series, because I grew up with them, and um, it was just so so magical for me, and uh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. You know, kind of liked the idea of there being like a, a chosen one and sort of you put yourself as that, that character, I think. Um, and then Atomic Habits by James Clear is a, a, a non-fiction, just the, the sort of process of life and that's sort of how I try and live. Um, I need to read it again probably to freshen myself it's up. It's one of those that is good for that, isn't it? To, to recycle through just to keep you checking in on the basics because that's one of the most fundamental Yeah, and it's just about just the way I think it's just, it's not like a it's not a mindset book it is but it's not it's not like think like this do like this i think it's so good because like like your book in a way it's just about processes and um just just the, the little nuances that you have to do and how simple it can be to build a habit and yeah. then you i like what he says in it about you're always voting for one or the other in every situation so if you get up in the morning and you something you do will be a vote to 
one way, which is the way you don't want, or the other way, and it's never, it's never in the middle, and you don't choose to do that, so you'll stay in the middle. It's you, you're pushing yourself backwards, so you're always Absolutely. moving, you're always moving the needle. You're either moving it forward or, or moving it back, and that's uh, every decision you make. And I, I try and live my life by by that as well as I can while staying human. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the last one, well, penultimate one for me was going to be a personal mantra. I know you've got one. Yeah. Um, consistency builds success. Obviously, my initials are, are CVS and um, I've always liked to, to use those as a, as a mantra. So consistency builds success. And I like to think I'm the epitome of that because I've just stayed so consistent over the years. Of, I don't drink. I've been always consistently looking for gains. I've always lived the life always just stayed consistent with my processes my my thoughts my goals i've never veered away from them um you know so uh the, the consistency is uh and i i see it more and more now about consistency and i don't know whether that's because i'm more aware of it because i use it a lot more in, as a word but it seems like everyone at the top of something is like consistency is what matters and um I'm, i think i'm one of the best examples of that because i wasn't any superstar amateur or kid or didn't start boxing until i was 16 so it wasn't like i had the, the born talent or anything like that and i think I just stayed at it and um yeah obviously achieved achieved my ultimate dream brilliant and chris you've given us so many um snippets of advice throughout this this conversation but Last question is to someone who's listening to this now that perhaps knows deep down they've got a bit more in them, but they're not quite sure how to express it. I know you've touched on a few things, but what would be your sort of final piece of advice or one message you'd love to communicate to that person? Have no regrets, I think, is one for me. And I think that's how I've always lived. Don't don't live in don't be ten years down the line and live in hindsight. You know, try and have the foresight to go if I give it everything and still fail will I have any regrets? Um, and that's sort of how I've lived my life in my twenties. I was earning no money because I had this foresight to just, I'll be happy if I get to 40 earning no money, but have no regrets about, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Um, and I think that happens a lot. My amateur coach said it really well to me. He said, yeah, that's like about my drink. We was chatting. I was like, yeah, I don't, don't drink during the boxing season back then. And now obviously don't drink at all. But, um, like, yeah, well, look, you can either be the person in the pub in when you're 40, 50, retired or whatever, saying, oh, I could have been this, I could have been that. Or you could be the one there with the actual real stories of, I did this, I did that. And for me, that was sort of how I looked at it and um, had to just have the foresight to think, okay, will I regret giving it everything in this thing, even if you have to compromise elsewhere? Um, but what what will really really what will you regret what will be the hardest thing to take and sometimes that's hard to do because it might involve breaking down relationships and stuff like that but that relationship will break down when you get to the point if you haven't given it everything and you're gonna start resenting the people or, or the situation so yeah don't don't have any regrets pick your uh pick what you want to do have no regrets about it and, and give it absolutely everything and uh at the end at least you gave it your all and that's all we all we can do in life chris thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us it's been immense um and uh yeah i look forward to catching up with you soon yes mate and um 
you know, I'd like to say thank you on, on here for, for all your help. Um, it's been phenomenal for me to have that soundboard and, and, and little snippets that you've given me and little insights and help. So uh, a big help, mate. And thank you for helping me, you know, win a world title. Thanks so much, mate. That means a hell of a lot coming from you. Thank you. No surrender and speak to you soon. Awesome, mate. So what a conversation with Chris. Always love catching up with him. Now, that evening, Chris gave an absolute masterclass in emotional control. And he gave us some insight in, into that there. And I want to go into a bit more depth in terms of what I mean by this. It's an area that's going to come up again and again in the conversations on this podcast. So I want to give you some base level introduction to what elite psychology looks like so you can extract more and more value moving forward. Plus, everyone everywhere talks about how important mindset is. There's very little information out there in, well, what do we actually mean by that? And how do we actually go to work on our psychology? There's no doubt that Chris's ability to master his own mind had an enormous role on his ability to win that world title. He demonstrated phenomenal emotional control. And that brings that first question up. What is emotional control and how do we define it? So for me, I'm looking at the ability to monitor, evaluate, and modify your emotional reactions to the ever-changing demands that life and elite performance brings. Elite performance without pressure, forget it. There is no such thing. The two are inseparable. If you want to excel, pressure is inevitable. Perhaps the most unique characteristic of the elite is that when the going gets tough, outlier performers flick the switch, regulate their emotion, and fight the urge to panic. They emerge from crisis triumphant, stronger than when they went in. To perform when it counts is the measure of elite performance. 10 years of work can come down to 10 crucial seconds, whether it's cup finals, major tournaments, product launches, television, uh, the leading role or final exams. We may have spent months getting to that point, but ultimately we're going to be judged on our ability to deliver that single performance. Few of us have experienced boxing in a world title fight, built a billion dollar company or flown fighter jets, but we can all relate to choking under pressure. Everyone listening from school, student to professor, from novice to Olympian, graduate to CEO, one time or another has choked under pressure. When the stakes are high, sometimes the only thing we can do effectively is hit the self-destruct button. And the way our mind can commit acts of mutiny against us can be an infuriating experience. Not only that, too many of us experience frustration over not performing the way we know we're truly capable of. The pressure isn't the problem. It's how we react to it that can be. Do you stay calm and collected like Chris? Or do you start to overthink your performance and capitulate? Now, the fact is that when the stakes are high, one of the biggest risks for any team or individual is that we bottle it. And you cannot simply train harder to prevent it. At this point, it's time to deliver on all your potential and demonstrate all the skill you've acquired when it matters most, on demand and under pressure. Not everybody can. It doesn't matter that you have a 100% success rate scoring penalties in practice. The only thing that counts is you score that one single penalty in extra time or the World Cup final against the Germans. Luckily, 
Emotional control is a skill, and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. Now, this all starts with understanding what goes on behind your eyes that causes you to perform so poorly or so well. If you don't know how your brain works, it's only natural to feel like the victim when negative emotions strike. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Now, the tool I'm going to introduce you to is the best way I know how to upskill people into the basics of performance or performance psychology and emotional control. And this model was adapted from the famous circumplex model of emotion. And I want you to imagine a circle separated into four zones with a horizontal axis that dictates the quality of your emotions, uh, left side negative, right side positive, and a vertical axis that dictates your output and focus of energy. So at the bottom being low output, low focus, and at the top being high output, high focus. The four zones, now at any point in time, you'll find yourself in one. And I've color coded them. So we're talking blue, red, black, and green. Only one is optimal for performance. Each zone has a unique inbuilt psychological and biological function that dictates how you think, how you feel, how you act, and ultimately how you perform. Now, in terms of using this barometer, you can use it to check in in acute situations like during a game, uh, working day or series of games. You can also check in chronologically across tournaments, seasons and careers. So first up, blue head. Now, when it's time to compete or perform, your number one aim is to be in top right. You want a high output of energy, laser focused on the task at hand, and you want to be feeling good about it. Psychologists will call this flow. Athletes call it the zone. I call it blue head. And when you're in blue head, you just know there's this lightness and energy that radiates through your body and you're totally locked into the moment. For Chris, the sort of distant, unfocused gaze, crisp nod and glint in his eye said it all. Adjectives that might describe how you might feel in here are excited, confident, motivated, among others. Or as uh, one outlier put it best to me, I feel like a god in here. Now, the blue zone represents the grace of elite performance. Your presence in blue head is exclusively in the here and now. There's zero worrying about the past or anxiety about the future. If you're like me, you're going to dream about these moments. This, for me, is the true thrill of excellence. And blue zone is so powerful because it prompts the secretion of six neurochemicals that drive elite performance. We've got norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and andamide, and oxytocin. They release in perfect symphony, right sequence, right concentration, right time. Bluehead is no accident. There's an evolutionary mechanism behind this chemical symphony of indestructibility and flow, and it's called broaden and build theory. The super six neurochemicals not only make you feel good, but they narrow that focus to the task at hand. They accelerate your ability to think quick. They make you more skilled in complex analysis and enhance your ability to see and invent new ways of doing things. Um, it also enhances your ability to acquire skill and maximizes the resources around you and develop innovative solutions to overcome challenges that present. 
shifting the baseline of your capabilities. And it's for this reason that Blue Zone is where all the magic happens. It's the total opposite of the fight, flight, or freeze response that gets uh, way too much airtime. Now, here's the crucial thing. In Blue Head, your blood flow is locked into your unconscious brain. Your unconscious brain is the source from which peak performance flows. Your skills are stored in your brain as mental structures. They're like spider's webs of knowledge that you can literally see on uh, what very expensive scans of your brain. Your unconscious brain is where these mental structures or skills are stored for automatic and rapid deployment. Chris's unconscious brain automatically computes the angles of a Coley's shots, calculating the most promising options to execute the counterpunch with the precision and power, which resulted in that beautiful left hook in the fourth round. All elite skill execution is an unconscious process. It occurs automatically when your unconscious brain is in the driving seat. In live performance, situations unfold so fast, there is zero time for analysis. And luckily for you, your unconscious brain already knows what to do. Then from time to time, elite performance requires some conscious thinking, like when Chris and his coach Shane would analyze his opponent, Lawrence, between rounds using facts and logic. This is where your frontal brain comes in. In the event that any challenges appear that require some conscious thought, your frontal brain, the default backup in elite performance, wakes up and takes over control from your unconscious brain. Now, when you're thinking in a calm, rational, controlled manner, your frontal brain is in control. Your frontal brain is that part of you that you think you think with when you're thinking, if that makes any sense. It's like the CEO of your life, the part of you that thinks about what you're doing before you do it. It's right with common sense, interpreting information based on objective data in search of the truth, which in turn leads to informing a plan. Now, when in control, you stick to the plan. You make calm, informed, rational decisions, just like Chris did in those first few rounds, where he was happy to concede a few of them in as part of the sort of conscious, intentional plan. That's all frontal brain work. Now, crucially, my primary aim for any individual or organization I'm working with is that when it's time to train or compete, they have the capacity or know-how to flick the switch and plug into Bluehead, just like Chris did. Now, when we talk about psychological skills training and psychological capacity, there's three core skills. And this one's that first one, that ability to switch on when it's time to compete on demand and under pressure, just like Chris did, as we've discussed. And then here's what happens next. Enter redhead. So you're up in blue head, all's going well. And then whack, you get this metaphorical kick in the pants. This could be one of a thousand things, a bad call from the ref, market crashing, sight of the audience, bullets cracking and thumping past your skull. Whenever you perceive the demands placed upon you to outweigh your perceptions of your capacity to deal with those demands, your emotional brain triggers stress and sends you into redhead. The color red is associated with threat, fear and danger. Terms like red mist, redlining, and seeing red represent anger, shock, and frustration. It's the precise opposite of blue head. You'll generally see flaring nostrils, sweeping arms, and sharp gestures that say it all. In redhead, you run too hot, burn up, become overwhelmed, and tense. 
Your emotional engine is metaphorically smoking. Your perception is slow. The game starts to run away from you. Your decision-making becomes rushed and irrational, and you're close to meltdown. And this is kind of what we saw start happening to Lawrence Acoli in that fight more and more as the fight went on and Chris seized control. Now, when stress hits, your emotional brain will always act first. Your heart will begin to pound, your teeth will grind, your body will tense up. Your emotional brain is way more powerful and reacts way faster than your unconscious or frontal brain. And in effect, you trade out your steely blue head for a red-headed uh, emotional freakout. Now, from a hormonal perspective, you trade in the super six high-performance neurochemicals for the frustrating three stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, and noradrenaline. When these flood your body, the power supply is pulled from your unconscious and frontal brain, forcing them to shut down. Now, your emotional brain, the real culprit, is in the driving seat. It's, in effect, the do-it-yourself lobotomy. It's your emotional brain that blurts out drivel while your frontal brain is left thinking, why the hell did I just say that? Anytime you have irrational thoughts or feelings, your emotional brain is running the show. Here's the absolute killer, though. When the switch that channels the power supply to your emotional brain is left on, you lose access to all your skill and ability. You spent years encoding in the unconscious part of your brain your advanced mental structures. Unconscious skill execution stops, logical thinking stops, and the skill breaks down completely, causing you to choke. Your talent disappears, you temporarily become a novice again. And the worst part about choking is that it tends to spiral. As you fixate on worst case scenarios, adrenaline shoots through you, ramps up, and you second guess skills that have been honed through years of practice. This is exactly what happens when we see the golfer choke on the 18th hole. Um, they start to perceive the threat, whether it's the crowd, media, realisation they might actually achieve their dream. They start to make the event bigger than the moment and they choke. They lose access to all those skills stored in their unconscious brain and a shot that they could hit blindfolded in blue head becomes impossible in red head. Now, our emotional brain has evolved over millions of years as a survival mechanism. And the primary purpose is to keep us alive. For our caveman ancestors, failure meant death, whether that was escaping giant bears, African crowned eagles, saber-toothed tigers, or failing to be uh, accepted by the tribe or to propagate the species. Whatever it was, your emotional brain alerted you to that danger. And this is why it evolves such a heightened sensitivity to threat and such an enormous capacity for negative emotion over three times the intensity of positive. We call this loss aversion bias, and it's why we fear losing the game, the pitch, capital, three times more intensely than we appreciate winning it. Now, on a kind of important side note, spending time in redhead is not just to the detriment of your performance, but you could argue more importantly to your health. Most of the time, the event uh, you initially anticipate that sends you into redhead never materializes. But consequently, the stress hormones, adrenaline, cortisol and noradrenaline continue to circulate after redlining for prolonged periods. And they are linked to virtually every major disease known to man. Not only that, 
because energy is contagious, living in the cortisol-fueled redhead can be very costly to those you care for, compete with, and lead, your teammates and family, and that of those you serve, so the defendant, hostage, or customer, investor, amongst others. And this is why my second focus and the focus of any leader, a performer, in terms of optimizing performance, should be ensuring that when Redhead inevitably strikes, which it will from time to time, that the performer or the organization is equipped to identify it fast and then has the capability to flick the control switch and bounce back into Bluehead as soon as possible. So back to that psychological skills and what does it tangibly look like? Well, if the first skill is that ability to, to switch on, the second is that ability to hit the control switch when Redhead inevitably strikes. Spend too much time in Redhead and eventually you'll burn out. Um, the brain and body can become so drained and toxic, they just collapse. Here, there's no energy left, no focus, and you feel really bad. You, you can't perform in this zone. When you're unable to detoxify after a stressful event and are then exposed to more and more stress, your brain and body will eventually break down and burn out. The vacant stares, slack expressions, bent neck sort of says it all. The emotions that engulf us in this zone are helplessness, hopelessness, detachment, misery. Um, you're going to lose interest, isolate, withdraw from responsibilities, um, excessively procrastinate, feel like you failed, doubt yourself and your role in life. And you are going to be riddled with anxiety and neurosis about things that would never previously trouble you. In here, you probably feel overworked, undervalued, apathetic, and you'll struggle to see hope of change. Now, the symptoms in here are pathological at this point. So we're talking strokes, heart attacks, high blood pressure, anxiety, depression, sleep disorders, thyroid shutdown, migraines, and autoimmune disease. The thing with this one is blackhead doesn't just hit you like the kick in the pants redhead delivers. You don't suddenly wake up one morning and, and sort of think, oh, I feel burnt out. Instead, it's insidious. It creeps up on you over time. And this can make awareness challenging. Now, both professional and lifestyle challenges can produce burnout. Professional causes tend to revolve around lack of concordance with or little or no control over your work. No routine, experience a lack of recognition, unclear expectations, performing monotonous work, a serious lack of challenge, or operating in unrelenting chaos. Uh, lifestyle causes of burnout can include lack of recovery, so sleep, nutrition, hydration, change, holiday, lack of close supportive relationships, taking on too much, not asking for help, and an inability to say no. The good news is, that through simply reversing these conditions, you can immediately begin the recovery process. Too many consecutive days trapped in here means it's time to take action. This is a completely reversible state. The trouble is that when we're in the darkness, there is blackhead. It's hard to see the way out. You need to call a timeout and tell someone you trust. Now, we must limit redhead to avoid blackhead. But the pressing question now becomes, well, how do we prevent this? And the short answer is by flicking the off switch. Enter Greenhead. The off switch, when flicked, moves you straight into Greenhead, bottom right. 
Now, Greenhead is not only the antidote to red and black, it's where you sharpen the axe. It's the zone of restoration, recovery, rejuvenation, and most importantly, growth. Green zone is where you renew and expand your capacity to meet the demands performance or life imposes on you. For some, it's going to be a siesta in the sun. For others, it's it's watching Game of Thrones on the sofa. Uh, others laughing and joking with friends or families. A million and one ways we can do this. But the emotions that we're after that characterize this zone include serenity, contentment, and peace. The only rule is not being allowed out of first gear mentally or emotionally and potentially physically if you're an athlete. You're not focusing on anything and you feel relaxed. To increase your capacity to handle stress, you need to expose yourself to the demands of life performance, be it physical, mental, or emotional. This exposure is your brain and body's stimulus to adapt to a superior level. It triggers all the physical and psychological adaptations that result in growth. But growth itself does not occur in the training room, on the pitch, or in the boardroom. You can only expand your ability in green zone. It's in this recovery zone that we actually adapt and improve. This is the other side of competing and training. And elite performers know this. We call this process supercompensation, defined as the adaptations that result in advanced abilities that can only be achieved through rest. Your growth will always be proportionate to the quantity and quality of your recovery. And that's why my third aim is that the second the performer is no longer competing or training, we need to get them straight into green zone to maximize the quality and quantity of their recovery. So in terms of those three psychological capacities, that ability to flick the switch when it's time to compete and perform and access bluehead, that ability to hit the control switch and bounce back when redhead inevitably strikes. The third one is this ability to flick the off switch when it's time to rest and recover. A massive part of optimizing performance is about finding the correct balance between performing work, like blue head and a bit of red, of course, and recovering from that work, which is very much green head. Switching on blue head when it's time to compete and train or flicking the control switch when you're shunted into redhead or engaging the off switch to access greenhead is what emotional control is all about. This is what outlier performers like Chris do best. Chris hit the control switch exceptionally well when hit with challenges like his mother's diagnosis or falling ill the week of the fight. Simultaneously, he was able to flick the off switch throughout his training camp to super compensate from his hard training. And ultimately, he was able to get bang in top right flicking that on switch to deliver on fight night. With this level of emotional control, successful performance becomes a series of exciting, explosive bouts of training and competition interspersed with enjoyable periods of rest and recovery. The oscillation between blue and green head. In elite performance, the difference in ability is so, so tight at the top level. And it often comes down to who can do this best. Yet still, so many organizations fail to psychologically prepare their performers in this mental aspect as much as they might do a technical or physical skill. And I think they're missing an enormous trick here. There is so much you can do to build these three crucial psychological skills, and it's a huge part of what the Mindset app's about. But 
if you are someone who struggles to manage your emotions, it's probably not because of insufficient willpower, discipline, or even knowledge. Most likely, it's because you've probably never really taken the time to reflect on how your thoughts and actions impact how you feel and perform, let alone to perfect the routines that run you all day. And we'll explore how to do all of this as the podcast unfolds. We know that performance is never a coincidence. You can use intentional intervention to build out personalized routines, just like Chris has, that become switches to flick when the moment requires. This puts you in the driver's seat when it comes to managing your emotions and optimizing your performance. Now, some immediate areas to focus on include reflection questions. Like first up, what takes you into redhead? Can you stop it? Is there a commute you can alter, a person you can stop spending time with, or a habit you can break? Then what takes you into green? And can you schedule more of it? Is there an activity you enjoy, a person you like spending time with, a place you enjoy going? When was the last time you specifically scheduled time for relaxation and recovery? Three, when are you in bluehead? What were you doing? What was unique about that moment? Can you do more of it? What tasks take you there? What responsibilities do you thrive on? And what people bring this out in you? Engage in more of that. And four, when in black, and I hope you don't get there, but who are you going to let know? Friend, coach, colleague, family member. But make sure you've got someone front and center that you're happy to speak to if that situation arises. Now, I hope this barometer gives you some context of what elite emotional control looks like. And we'll certainly dive deeper into the more specifics of how we engage and flick these switches as the podcast unfolds. My favorite thing about the barometer is that it demystifies our emotions and provides a platform for common language or for group conversation. And the colors uh, in the barometer have a specific purpose. They form a shared performance language, like all shared languages, enables us to connect and communicate in this area better. You can use this code to inform a teammate that they are redlining or to reinforce through reward a performer who stays blue under pressure, just like a coach might reinforce a technical skill perform well, or by just saying, I'm in red at the moment. Everyone's clear on where you are emotionally and can then assist you to flick the switch. This is going to be a massive area we focus on as the podcast progresses. And if you want to get stuck in and immediately start to develop these three crucial skills, there's plenty of emotional control training exercises on the Mindset app, which you can find a link to in the description. You'll also find guided performance routines for the on, control, and off switch. I want to say a massive thank you to Chris. I'm always inspired and pumped after speaking with you, mate. Keep up the good work. I, th I know this uh, world title is just, just the beginning. Speak soon. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. I love this topic of human performance and excellence and I've been engaged in it neurotically for the last 20 years. It's a sincere privilege to have the opportunity to share my knowledge, network and learnings with you. Now go and put the principles to work. Make sure you let us know what resonates. Reach out with questions, blind spots. We've got you covered. Remember, excellence is just a series of days repeated over and over again. Now go and win your day. In 2021, I published my first book, Accelerating Excellence. If you're finding the conversations and information on this podcast useful, you might want a physical reference point and to gain even deeper awareness of the concepts discussed. 
The book's actually more of an operation manual containing more detail with a step-by-step -step guide on how to implement all this stuff so you can get maximum benefit, which was one of my main motivations in writing it. Yes, I want the podcast and the book to be inspiring and entertaining, but it was non-negotiable for me to make sure that the listener or reader is provided with a structure and direction in terms of actually putting this stuff to work. The book's called Accelerating Excellence. It's a number one international bestseller. And if you're moving from more than just interest towards implementation, I think you'll really enjoy it. Like everything I do, the book is evidence-based, but practice-led, drawing on my experience, working with some of the world's most elite, exclusive, high-performing teams and individuals. It's filled with highly actionable strategies you can apply today to become better tomorrow. If this sounds like something from you, see the link in description where you can download six chapters of the book for free in either audio or digital format. It's also available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and at your local bookstore. I hope you enjoy. By now, we all know the importance of a winning mindset. We're bombarded with elite performers telling us that mindset's what separates the best from the rest. That if we want to be successful, we need to be more confident, resilient, and motivated. And of course, when panic strikes, we need to calm down, relax, or chill out. Great, we get it. But the question is how? We're given this guidance with almost zero practical advice in terms of how to achieve it. Where can we actually go to develop that world-class mindset? What's the back squat for resilience, the bench press for confidence, and the bicep curl for positive thinking? Well, that's why I created the Mindset app. Through the app, you'll gain access to the psychological skills training used by world champion athletes, special forces operators, and some of the world's most successful traders and investors. The reality is these guys pay me a fortune to help them get this right. But the thing is, these skills are equally, if not more important, for the aspiring athlete, executive, or operator. And that's exactly why I created this app. I want these tools and training available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Mindset is a skill, and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. The tools and techniques are designed in a way that will literally rewire your brain. Like learning to ride a bike or drive a car, all the techniques are designed with creating a high-performing, self-regulating U2.0. Every strategy in the Mindset app is backed by empirical research. There's 10-minute emotional control training exercises that have been shown to increase your ability to overcome detrimental decision-making biases by up to 80%. In another study, just three weeks of executing visualization training led to 34% improvements in performance. Another research group found 50% greater improvements in the rate of learning. And just a few weeks of performing visualization led to 22% reductions in anxiety and 21% increases in confidence. These numbers are phenomenal. And I've never met an elite performer in any domain that can afford to be missing out on this type of edge. What I love most is that we've structured everything so that you don't need to carve out an extra hour in your day to get this done. Small bite-sized chunks of five to 10 minutes are all it takes. In fact, I'd only encourage you to use the tool on your commute, in the sauna, at the end of your working day, or bolt it onto the end of your gym session. Any dead time you have can now immediately be transformed to deliver you extreme performance gains. My goal is to remove every possible obstacle to your development. And with that in mind, the basic package is completely free. Visit the link in description and sign up for our pre-launch free emotional control, visualization, and performance routine programs. I really hope you enjoy.